So I, I had an email recently that had in the email a perfectly looking logo for the United States Post Office. And they said that they wanted to deliver a package to my house, but they had the wrong street number, and could I correct the street number in order to get the package? And I thought, well, now, that's weird. Of all the people that should know my street number, wouldn't you think the post office would know that? But, you know, there was a link, and so I, I clicked on the link. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> You think I'm that stupid, okay? <laughs> Just hold on, I haven't finished the story. <laughs> the house fell in, <laughs> lost all my money. Help us, right, no. no. So, Next click away, they are asking for not just the address, but my credit card number. So then I knew the scam was on, right? Okay. Man, you guys are a brutal crowd today, all right? <laughs> Listen, have you, have you ever had somebody who maybe they said, you're a friend, and then they try to sell you something? I mean, under the guise of one thing, they come with something else. I think the same, I can say it, scam, happens in religion. When people say they don't concentrate on doctrine or certainty, but only love Jesus and only want to follow love, I think that's a scam. And I want to tell you why. And I think this is important for our discussion. And I, I come to you today as a pastor who is deeply concerned for our culture and for our churches that they uphold the word of God. What I'm not saying is we have to be a fundamentalist a, uh, or what I call a fundamentalist, all right? That's not what I'm saying. Although I think, honestly, there are fundamentals of the Christian faith that we hold to. And so, you know, if you, if you want to say that, yeah, okay, I, I can go with that. But Christianity has a PR problem within our culture today. That's no news to you. You know that. In, in a world of ideas, it's hard to find anything more repugnant to the masses then the idea of having certainty in the matters of faith. The thought goes something like this. When you claim to know something with certainty, you are proud. You are unwilling to listen or change. And you are one step away from violence all in the name of God. That is pretty much across the board in our nation that people believe this. Next step to the logic is that we are to avoid doctrine so that we're not dogmatic. And when you're uncertain about your faith, uh, you're humble, you're tolerant, you're peace-loving, okay? So what happens then is that folks put on their Rob Bell look-alike costume, 
And then they stay away from words like sermon, preaching. You know, we, we, we don't want that. Now, I want to submit an idea. And I, I hope that this is not new to you. But it's been my experience that arrogance and pride are just as much true of atheists, progressives, and those who are in conservative Christianity. When I use conservative, I'm not meaning it in a political sense, but in a, in, in, in a theological sense, right? Having doctrine is not the problem. It is the kind of doctrine that is the problem. But it comes under the ruse that, ah, you know, I don't check off the boxes of doctrine. Now, let's define some terms. Progressive Christianity, as it's talked about today, is, is a melding of postmodern thought that deconstruct traditional ways of thinking, and, and then along with that comes a whole host of things to be tolerant of, social justice, environmental emphasis. And not all those ideas are bad, by the way, but it's all under the banner of the love of Jesus. And it's really not too dissimilar to decades ago when you maybe heard the term, if you're my age, you know, Christian liberalism, okay, where you try to be more rationalistic and less dependent upon the revelation of the Bible. Uh, and it's the idea of progressivism that denies the importance of doctrine that I want to address today. So I, I am seeking to build a case for us that I started last week, that our, our view of God is critical to our Christian life, right? However, I realize that we live in a culture that ask these doctrinal questions or make some kind of doctrinal statement seems out of place, it's unnecessary, and it's even foul. So I need to address that presupposition first. I mean, having, having taught for 20-some years, interacting with students, I don't think I'm too off to say that people in the church believe some of these progressive ideas. And it, listen, Again, if I say it once, I'm going to say it again many more times that people who believe this are not the enemy. We love our neighbors no matter what. You know, I don't care if they're, if they're Muslim, if they're atheists, um, if they're progressive. It doesn't matter. We're going to love them. They're made in the image of God. Amen? Okay? That, that's what we need to do. It's the ideas that I think we need to address. I'm requesting a little at, a latitude here. Um, as we wade through these waters. So here's the first premise I want to build on. All faith communities have doctrine. All faith communities have doctrine. People who claim that they're about love and not doctrine are more times than not dogmatic about their progressivism, okay? It's not doctrine that they're avoiding. It's certain labels. It's certain beliefs, Again, it's popular to say, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus, uh, uh, I'm going uh, to love, and, and that means decrying, you know, certainty and doctrine. And on the surface, that sounds so sweet, so accepting and tolerant. But all you have to do is uh, start subscribing to how the Old and New Testament has authority, 
how God's design for marriage is for male and female. Or talk about the presence of sin, and then real quick, you learn where that tolerance ends. And what you suddenly discover is that people who are on one side of their mouth, you know, they don't like doctrine and certainty, but they're dogmatic that the Bible is not authoritative in pertinent issues. They're dogmatic that parts of the Bible are to be rejected. Again, these people are not the enemy. And they're still made in the image of God. The ideas are the enemy. It's a worldview. They believe firmly in a kind of doctrine. It's just not a doctrine that coheres with the Bible. Now, doctrine is simply a set of beliefs for a faith community. And every faith community has a set of beliefs, even if they're atheistic. I don't think I'd be a surprise to most of you to know that there are people who consider themselves faith communities, but they're atheistic. When I say that Jesus loves everyone, and he doesn't want us to have any firm opinions about sexual relations, I am espousing a doctrine or what I believe about Jesus and morals. And this idea that I am upholding mystery and doubt and rejecting certainty to present myself as, you know, humble usually comes with a certainty of no firm morality, a certainty about Jesus being tolerant. And by the way, if you reject the Bible, I don't know how you know that Jesus is tolerant. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, where do you get that information? But that's just, that's, that's an aside. But he's certainly not the God of the, uh, of the New Testament, but he's just, you know, this milk toast Messiah with a little M. And there's going to be a certainty that uh, conservative churches, again, in a theological sense, conservative churches are way out of line. And a certainty with a whole host of kind of woke misdeeds. When a way of thinking has certain views about God, this is what's called theology proper, a doctrine. When you have views about Jesus, that is Christology, a doctrine, right? When a community has certain views about the Bible, uh, particularly not being authoritative, that is bibliology, a doctrine of the Bible. When there are certain views about how the church should be, that is ecclesiology, a doctrine of the church. So let there be no doubt that progressivism loves doctrine, all right? And that is why I think this thinking is so insidious. People think they are buying tolerance, love, freedom of doctrinal and moral strictures, but they're getting a bait and switch. They are getting a, a doctrine that is not consistent with God's revealed word. They are getting a false Messiah that does not resemble the one prophesied in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. They are getting a gospel gutted from the idea of sin and a blood sacrifice. They are getting a type of morality, and I hope I don't sound too harsh here, but I think it's familiar with Scripture, all right? 
They are getting a type of morality that has ropes attached around the neck. And on the other end, a millstone. False doctrine is always connected with a certain type of behavior. Listen to what Paul wrote. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Notice the connection of not enduring sound doctrine and following one's passions. Peter wrote, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing about themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Again, false doctrine and sensuality are kissing cousins. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, how much of the church, conservative Christianity or evangelicalism, however you want, and I try not to even use the term evangelicalism because it's loaded with so much stuff that is negative. But anyway, they often respond with just shouting louder. That's not what I'm suggesting. It doesn't mean we get nastier. That's not what we should be doing. Uh, it doesn't mean that we quit loving our neighbor, okay? We have plenty of examples of Christians and Christian leaders just being jerks. This is not the way of Jesus, but Jesus was not a milk toast. If I remember right, Jesus overturned the tables in the temple, and he was very critical of particularly the religious leaders. So he spoke the truth. But when we are living in a world where people criticize those who claim to know something about God. Again, a lot of things I don't know, but a few things we might know about God. It can get tiring when you hear this constantly. And you begin to question yourself, and you begin to question the validity of your relationship with God. And it's why, as a pastor, I want to go over these things so that hopefully it will encourage you and you'll be aware of, you know, not giving your credit card information, all right? <laughs> John, a person who was very close to Jesus, said this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Look at what God has given you. Look at the experience of forgiving, uh, God forgiving your sins, having intimacy with God, of, of victory over the evil one. These are not mythical or imagined things, but real and actual characteristics you possess that are all consistent and confirmed by the witness of scriptures. Now, we talked last week about the importance of having a view of God that is consistent with how God has revealed himself in the Old and New Testament 
and with the person of Christ. This is instead of kind of what's presented today of a moral, therapeutic deism that's passed off with Christianity today, that I'm just supposed to be, you know, God wants me to be nice, I'm supposed to be happy, God just kind of leaves it up to us, we just make up the rules as we go along. And that will adapt to our modern society. So here's the question I think you have to leave on the table, is that what kind of God has revealed himself to us? Who is God? I mean, isn't that rather critical to our faith? What kind of God is revealed to us? You know, when God was drafting Moses to lead his people, the Israelites, Moses resisted because he felt unqualified. And I don't know that you can be in any kind of Christian leadership in just about any level and not feel unqualified, okay? That should be at the top of my resume. I've, I've told the story many times, I was just telling it this weekend, that I didn't really want to be a pastor, at least initially, um, and it was almost like God just plopped me right into it, almost forced me into it. Now, now I love it, and I, I, I love what God is, is, uh, is doing, but uh, you still feel unqualified. So that's what Moses was saying to God. And God tells Moses, that, listen, I'm going to be with you. And it's almost like, hey, this is all you're going to need. Um, so when you think, hey, I'm unqualified to do this, you got to ask yourself, well, wait a minute, it's not just me. It's me and God. So don't you think God will be able to, you know, <laughs> make up for some of that? Anyway, uh, this is what we read in Exodus. God tells Moses that he's going to be with him. And this is what happens. Then Moses said to God, this is in Exodus 3, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. At the very least, this is a declaration of God's self-existence or his aseity. He is not created he has always been. Now, that's a characteristic that only God holds. That's unique to God. But as, as magnificent as that is, it gets better. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 8. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And later on, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is clearly proclaiming his self-existence and part of the Godhead. Add to this, before the earth was formed, there was the Spirit of God, as Genesis 1-2 states. And then we read further on in the New Testament in Acts 5, where Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. And in the next verse, it says, you lied to God, equating the Holy Spirit with God. 
The point is, is that the Trinitarian nature of God is affirmed as God being three in one. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one God. When Jesus sent his followers to make disciples, he said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, granted, the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. But there's a clear presentation of the concepts in the Bible. There's a 20th century Russian theologian. And I know most of you know you're Russian theologians, all right? <laughs> uh, Vladimir Lasky said this. He said, if we reject the Trinity as the sole ground of all reality and all thought, we are committed to a road that leads nowhere. We end up in an aporia. That's uh, an irresolvable disjunction or contradiction. So we end up in an aporia, in folly, in the disintegration of our being, in spiritual death. Between the Trinity and hell, there lies no other choice. Whoa, that is strong. Why is the Trinitarian nature of God so essential to our understanding of God? Well, here's the first point. The Trinitarian nature of God is essential to him being a source of loving community. It's said of the Godhead that there is inseparable operation or activity. It means for every single created effect worked by God, it is worked by the three in concert. Jesus said in John 14, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And again, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus is in the Father, the Father is in the Son, the Father and the Holy Spirit are really one. No one can, can divide them. There's distinction among them, but there's no separation. And in the Lord's Prayer in John 17, Christ revealed that he and the Father are what? Are one. There is a characteristic of God's uniqueness in being Trinitarian that would not be the case if God were just a single person without the Godhead. With the Godhead, there is perfect unity where concerted cooperation are seen. For instance, when, when Jesus was baptized, you had the Father's voice coming from heaven, you had the Holy Spirit appearing as a dove, and they came together to baptize the Son in the Jordan. But even something more profound takes place in the Trinity. Think about it. If God were just one person, he could not be intrinsically, eternally loving since before creation, he would have nobody to love. Think about this. Even if there were two persons of God, he might be loving, but it would be a different kind of love. It might be an exclusive, ungenerous kind of love. I mean, two people can love each other, and particularly if it's the Godhead and it's perfect love, they would be so enraptured with each other, why bother with anything else? He would be a God that would be distant from his creation. 
But God from eternity has delighted to share his son, share his love through the son and the Holy Spirit. There would not be true love between them if they were just different aspects of one divine personality. John 5.20 says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So, what child is this? He's a member of the Trinitarian Godhead. Now, many people think of God as a distant, cold deity on kind of like a power trip, you know, having to have praise and, and, and glory like some petulant child. I mean, if you think about it, if God needs to be praised by his creation, that means God is dependent on his creation. How can a solitary God be eternally and essentially loving when love necessitates another? There's a really good book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves, and this is what he writes. He says, such are the problems with non-triune gods in creation. Single-person gods have spent eternity alone are inevitably self-centered beings, and so it becomes hard to see why they would ever cause anything else to exist. Wouldn't the existence of a universe be an irritating distraction for a God whose greatest pleasure is looking in a mirror? Creating just looks like a deeply unnatural thing for such a God to do. And if such gods do create, they always seem to do so out of an essential neediness or desire to use what they create merely for their own self-gratification. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, self-existing as a loving unit, they don't have this problem. God does not begrudge having someone beside him. He relishes in it. He has always enjoyed showering his love upon his son. And in creating, he rejoices to shower it on the children he loves through his son. Why does this matter? What difference does this make? Let me throw out a couple. How would you define marriage? How would you explain marriage without the Trinity? Good luck. We are left with an empty shell. How could we share in a faith community called the church without the presence and model of the Trinity? Without the Trinity, we are left with self-absorbed human beings with no hope of unity and love. This is what the Godhead has modeled and practiced. And guess what? Whose image are we created in? Him. 
So you see, even if you deny all this, <laughs> you can't get away from how you were made. We still have this need for relationship because God has made us that way. Because that's who God is. So our second point, the Trinitarian nature of God is essential to our experience of loving community. It's a living lesson to reject self-centered individualism in order to live in a new covenant community. God has established a pattern of community building when he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful in what? Multiply, create a family, come together in marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become what? One flesh. Where do you get that idea? From the fruit of their union, that's expanded. The earth would be covered with his glory with countless image bearers reflecting the Father through male and female, but one. Maybe this is a telling reason why on all the days of creation, it was called good, except when woman was created for man, and it was called what? Mm, very good, right? Okay. Now the oneness of God can be modeled with man and woman, reflecting God as image bearers. And again, that's multiplied through children who reflect God's love in community. See, the triune God did not create individuals just as individuals. He created a human community, male and female with children, that would reflect his unity through the covenantal relationships that they enjoyed. In addition, every believer is identified with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in salvation and with their identification with fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters in God's household called what? The church. By the way, when the scriptures say that Christ gave his life up, who did he give his life up for? Was it me? Was it you? It's not what it says. Christ gave his life as a ransom for what? Many. Plural. God is with us was the message on Christmas. Matthew 1, God is with us, not just me, not just you. He's with us. I think this is why churches experience a kind of convulsion of sorts. When people in our culture are going from unchecked autonomy, defining themselves by themselves, and now reborn into a community of faith. Brothers, sisters in Christ with hyper-individualistic people coming to Christ. And by the way, we all were or, or are often fail to see how this individualism militates against God's created order, God's design for salvation and the church. Paul wrote in Ephesians, therefore be imitators of God. That kind of has a, a new meaning when you think of this Trinitarian nature of God. Be imitators of God 
as beloved children and walk in love. Walk in unity towards one another as Christ loved and gave himself up. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So our message is not just a Savior has come for me, but he's come to save us. As God is not alone. So we, made in his image, are not designed to be alone. This does not mean that every single person is doomed. Please hear me right here. Because we still have the fellowship of the church. We can still enjoy a relationship in a deep level, even as a single person. But we are designed for community. A Trinitarian nature of God is critical to our families, our salvation, and church. Think of it this way. When Adam and Eve fell, what was one of the first things they did? Do you remember this? They didn't just misbehave or break the rules. But what did they do? They put fig leaves over themselves. They became self-conscious, right? They perverted love. They rejected God and turned the love to themselves. Is that not what is screaming from our streets today? Love yourself. Now, I'm all for taking care of ourselves, being healthy, but I do that so that I can be better prepared to love well, to be a better husband, be a better father, be a better pastor, better citizen. So I take care of myself that I can serve others, right? God desires love and community with his creation because that's his nature. That is who he is in the Godhead. A loving, loving being enjoying community. And by his grace, he wants the same for his image bearers. Reeves, who I referenced earlier, so wonderfully said, by the Spirit uniting me to Christ, the Father knows and loves me as his Son. By the Spirit, I begin to know and love him as my Father. By the Spirit, I begin to love aright, unbending me from my self-love. He wins me to share the Father's pleasure in the Son and the Son's in the Father. By the Spirit, I slowly begin to love as God loves, with his own generous, overflowing, self-giving love for others. If there is a God... Why is there anything else? Why the universe? Why us? Why might God decide to have a creation? As the Father, Son, and Spirit have always been, have always known fellowship with each other, so we, in the image of God, are made for fellowship. End quote. What child is this? He's a son. 
loved by his Father. And he invites us to enjoy the same. Let's pray.